the blueprint. Good morning, church. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Let me go ahead and pray, and then we can dive in. Uh, Father, we thank you so much. Um, I just like this song. There's so much we can thank you for. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for redeeming us. Thank you for pulling us out of our pits. Thank you for breaking us out of our bondages. Thank you for restoring us. Thank you for pouring your spirit out on us to empower us. Thank you that our past is not counted against us. Thank you that you have a plan for us. Thank you that you are constantly working in us. And thank you that we're not alone. Lord, we want to thank you. And out of that gratitude, we want to live for you. Out of that gratitude, we offer our worship, not just our song, but our lives to you. Because you deserve it all. And so right now, Father, I pray, as we dive into this word, oh man, I'm so excited about it, that one, you would fill me with your spirit. I need it. I need your anointing. But also work in our hearts. We need it. We need your breath, your breath, your word that is God-breathed to breathe in our souls breathe in those areas in our lives that we need to come alive again. Lord, speak to us, convict us, challenge us, encourage us, transform us with your word. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Um, All right. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to uh, Galatians chapter 3. And so today we are in Galatians 3. Um, I'm just getting a lot of feedback, or maybe it's just me, but if not, all right. So over the past two weeks, we have been kind of walking through the book of Galatians again. If you are just coming into the study with us, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to it online because it helps you know the context of what we are studying. And so we don't have a lot of time in the beginning to kind of go do recaps, but I do want to give a short recap to help kind of bring us uh, on the same page. And so over the past two weeks, we've been looking at chapter one and chapter two. And the book of Galatians is a very passionate letter that Paul wrote to defend the gospel. Right, And so a distorted view of the gospel has been spreading throughout the churches in Galatia. And we know the churches in Galatia are churches that Paul planted. He planted these churches and then he left. And then years later, leaders, Jewish leaders came to Galatia and started spreading a different gospel from Paul. And this distorted gospel has caused believers to depart from the original and authentic message of Christianity. The gospel that Paul preached in Galatia was that we are saved by grace, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. And when we trust in Jesus, we are saved from God's wrath and punishment that we deserve for our sins, right? If we were to die today, 
and stand in the presence of God and God were to ask, why would I invite you into my presence? In presence, the only satisfying answer would be because of Christ alone. Christ alone. And that was the gospel message of Paul. However, these false teachers came behind Paul and started teaching a different gospel, telling these believers that there are prerequisites to be accepted by God. Prerequisite to be accepted into God's presence, to approach him. And there are specific rules, they said. Specific rules, tradition, and specific ways that we had to live to even have a chance. And these religions that they were promoting and tradition that they were promoting had to be kept in such a way that God eventually, when you stand in his presence, he would weigh them, your performance, and then determine whether or not you will pass. And so Paul hears this false gospel about this false gospel, in fact, while he was in jail. And so he decided to write this letter to the Galatians, essentially asking them, why are you buying into this? Why are you buying into this? In Galatians chapter 3, you're going to see Paul's passion comes out even more, where in Galatians chapter 3, Paul's going to ask the Galatians, why are you so foolish? Why are you so dumb? Literally, that's Paul's words, not mine. In fact, I thought about naming this sermon, why are you so dumb? But then I thought people wouldn't come back next week, right? But you're going to see this in chapter 3, where Paul is going to ask, why are you so foolish? Because these believers were believing that we can live the Christian life in our own natural strength and effort. When God has given us his divine power through the Holy Spirit. God has given you power but instead you're choosing to live in your own efforts. And that's why Paul can't understand this. He's like, what are you thinking? The same power that rose Christ from the dead lives inside of you. The same power that rose Christ from the dead lives inside of every believer, empowering every believer to live a supernatural life, a victorious life. Instead of trusting in that power, in the Holy Spirit, we are choosing to live in our own flesh. We're choosing to live in our own strength. And that's why Paul says, that's dumb. That's foolish. We are all trying to improve in different areas in our lives. And sometimes we feel frustrated. And sometimes we, we, when, when, you, when we don't see the, the progress, the spiritual progress, we're disappointed. And we give our best effort and it seems like nothing seems to work. We're disappointed. We're frustrated with ourselves. We're frustrated with where we are. Essentially, Paul's question to us and to these Galatians is, is it working for you? Is it working for us when we try to progress in our walk with God? When we try to live this Christian life on our own, in our own strength, 
and nothing seems to work. Why do you continue in that way? When we try to live in our own effort, does it work for us? When we try to figure out our future through our plans and our own wisdom, does it work for us? When we try to hold on to our marriages or hold on to our kids from being led astray or reconcile in relationships, does it work for us when we do it in our own strength? When you're trying to overcome sin in your life, is it working for you when you're tried in your own strength? And that is Paul's message to us. I want you to write this down if you have something. What Paul is going to encourage us in Galatians chapter 3 is that the way we live the Christian life, listen, the way we live the Christian life is the same way we came into the Christian life. The way we live out the Christian life is the same way we came into the Christian life, by grace and not by our own efforts. By the supernatural power of God, and not in our own flesh. The Christian life is a life that cannot be lived apart from grace, and it cannot be lived in our own effort. And so it's foolish, Paul says, to have the power of God available to us, but choose to live apart from God's grace. To have the supernatural power of God and his strength that he offers, but we choose to live in the flesh. The Christian life is an impossible life to live because we are called to live like Jesus. How many of you found that easy? I'm glad no one raised their hands. The Christian life is a life where we are called to be holy like God is holy. It's a holy life. Those are impossible standards for us to try to live by. And even if we try in our own efforts, we will fail. And that is why God provides the Holy Spirit. We continue in the Christian life the same way we started. And that's what Paul's going to remind us, that God's supernatural grace brought us into this life, and it's his supernatural grace that will keep us, that will empower us to continue to live in this life. All right, Galatians chapter 3, all right? Paul will help us to understand, and we've been talking about the law. Paul will help us understand what is the purpose of the law. In light of now grace, like why do we have the law, right? Um, the other day, my daughter, uh, she's eight years old, Brielle, um, I was driving her to school, and she said, Dad, you know, we're studying the book of Galatians in Hello World, right? Shout out to Hello World, right? Um, and she said, Dad, but we studied last week, Paul said to Peter, you are wrong for telling the Gentiles to follow the law. And I'm like, oh, man, you were listening, right? Good. But then she said, but why? Because if God gave the law, why would Paul now tell Peter to not follow the law that God gave? And I'm like, man, Brielle, like that is a 
powerful theological question. And I'm like amazed. Then I said, get out of the car. <laughs> right? Because here's your stop. Here's your stop. I don't have time to answer that question right now. Right? But that was a powerful theological, and I, I did eventually answer her question. Um, but that, that, that is the theological question that Paul will address in Galatians chapter 3. Like, we have the law, but why? What is the purpose of the law? And now that we are Christians in light of God's grace, what do we do with the law? Because Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. But what does that mean for us as Christians? We have the law, do we obey the law? What's the purpose? And do we still have to live according to that standard? And so in Galatians chapter 3, I think Paul shows us a couple things. One, that the law in itself was never meant to be a standard for us to keep. It was never meant for us to keep. This was not a standard for us to keep, to be right with God, to be right with God. The law was intended to be a mirror of our limitations. It was intended to be a mirror of our limitations. So no matter how hard we try to live according to the law, no matter how much we try to live the Christian life in our own efforts to keep this law, we will fail. We will fail. Some may say God rigged it that way. Because this is what he says in Romans chapter 3, 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, meaning all have broken the law. All have broken the law. And so because we have failed, the law also was intended to make us desperate for God. The law was intended to make us hungry for God, to cry out for help, to cry out for divine help because it was impossible to live according to this standard. And this is what we're going to see in Galatians chapter 3. Verse 1, Paul says, you foolish Galatians, right? Again, this is his words, not mine, right? You foolish Galatians who has cast the spell on you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? I only want to learn this from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? He says again. After beginning by the spirit, are you now finishing by the flesh? Did you receive or did you experience so much for nothing? If, in fact, it was for nothing. So then, does God give you the spirit and work miracles among you by your doing works of the law? Or is it by believing what you heard? Right? In these five verses, Paul tells the Galatians, essentially, right? And this is my trans, 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 transliteration of it. Like, what are you thinking? Like, have you lost your mind? You're completely out of your mind. What in the world are you thinking? So Paul uses these strong languages to communicate how surprised he was to hear that the Galatians were drastically deviating from the truth. 
Paul says it's like they were, were under this spell. Voodoo was cast upon them. This spiritual spell to have them thinking. Thinking in a way that doesn't make sense. That's how serious Paul wanted them to see how their deviation from the truth was. That it seems like a spell was cast on you because you're not thinking logical. So the Galatians, they were deconstructing their faith. And so this is not a new thing to us today because that's exactly what the Galatians were doing. They were deconstructing their faith. And many of us know people who are in that space right now where they're deconstructing their faith. They're reevaluating their belief in Christianity. They're questioning the Bible. They're questioning God. They're questioning Jesus. They're questioning the church. They're deconstructing their faith. And as they do that, the goal for them in deconstruction is to become more advanced in their thinking or more spiritual. But then it always seems like, it always seems like to make them more foolish. To make them more foolish because they allow Google to be their resource and, and, and source of truth, or maybe YouTube, or maybe books, or maybe podcasts. And all that pulls them away from the truth. But here's the thing. I don't think deconstructing, what the, even what the Galatians were doing, and even what we do today, deconstruction is necessarily a bad thing. I don't think it's wrong. And in fact, God is not intimidated by our questions. God is not intimidated by our doubts. In fact, God wants us to bring those questions to him. God wants us to be real with him and express to him our doubts. And so questioning and having doubt about Christianity, I don't think that's necessarily wrong. Having question, having questions about God or having questions about the church or Christianity doesn't mean that you are necessarily abandoning the faith. It becomes foolish. It becomes foolish when we think we can find the answers on our own. It becomes foolish when we think that we can find the answers outside of the Bible. We can find the answers outside of the church. We can find the answers outside of community. And we don't need Jesus. It becomes foolish when we think that every question that we have has to find an answer. And that there are some question that we may have that may never be answered. And that there are some things that we have to trust God. And there are some things that we have to receive by faith. It becomes foolish when we think that God owes us an answer to every question. And this is why we have faith. This is why we trust. And so it's foolish when we try to deconstruct and figure things out on our own apart from community, apart from the authority of God's word, and apart from faith. And so Paul right now, he's telling the Galatians, he's asking these rhetorical questions in the first five verses so that they can reflect on the foolishness of what they're doing, right? And he's like, what are you thinking? And so again, we read in verse two, he says, I just want to learn this from you. 
Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning by the Spirit, are you now finishing with the flesh? Right? All these questions he's asking. Did you experience so much for nothing, if in fact for nothing? So then, does God give you the Spirit and work miracles among you by your doing, or is it the law? Is it believing what you heard? And so what we see here, Paul is saying to the Galatians, you started with the gospel, you heard the gospel, you heard Jesus crucified. In fact, some probably saw Jesus crucified. And the gospel is what makes us right with God through the law. We could try to do it on our own, but we will fail. But this is why Jesus died. His performance on the cross was the best performance that we needed. And our performance is filthy rags. And he's like, you heard this gospel. You started with the gospel. And now you're trying to finish in the flesh. And then he goes on. He says three times, you receive the spirit. You receive the spirit. And after Jesus died and resurrected and ascended to heaven, the Holy Spirit came to live in every believer to be our helper. And Jesus says in John chapter 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. But then he goes on and he says, well, you can't keep my commandments. And this is why I will ask the father and he will give you another helper. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. But then he's like, well, but you need help. And I will give you another helper so that he may be with you forever. The helper is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, but it does not see him or know him. But you know him. You've experienced him because he remains with you and will be with you. Right. And so even Jesus is saying, you need help. You need help. And so Paul's asking these questions, but you received the Holy Spirit. You saw the Holy Spirit work in your life. You've experienced how the Holy Spirit transformed you. You've experienced how the Holy Spirit broke shackles in your life and set you free from struggles. You've seen the miracles in your, in your life, your own life. And so again, that's why Paul is surprised and he's like, you began with the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit, but now you're trying to finish trusting in your own strength. And listen, I believe the reason why we do that, we revert back to our flesh, is because of pride. It's because of spiritual pride. And spiritual pride is delusional. It's delusional, right? Spiritual pride is the delusion that we can trust ourselves more than we can trust the Holy Spirit that is in us. That's crazy thinking. Spiritual pride is a delusion because I want you to think about it. How often have we tried right, to do things on our own and we saw it only resulted in failure? How often we thought we could fight struggles in our lives without accountability and it also always resulted in failure? How often Have we tried to stay in unhealthy relationship while the Holy Spirit has tattooed red flag over their foreheads? And you're like, "Mm, 
nah, I can make it work. How often have we felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit and that we need to act on it, but we think, I can handle it. I can handle it. A spiritual delusional. That's, that's pride. And if we could handle it, think about it. If we can handle it on our own, then Jesus would be a liar to say that we needed a helper. But no, he said, you can't. And that's why I'm providing you. And I'm asking for the Holy Spirit to come to be your helper, to be with you always. And that's why Jesus says, in order to keep my commandments, you need help. You need the conviction. You need the power. You need the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So it's foolish to ever try to live that way. And sadly, many of us believers are living like we don't have the Holy Spirit inside of us. So we are believers and the Holy Spirit lives in us, but then practically we're living like God didn't give him to us as our helper. See, the role of the Holy Spirit in all of our lives, one, is to make us completely new. He transforms us. Two, he guides us to obedience. Three, he transforms our character. Four, he renews our minds. And then five, he deepens our intimacy with God. And, that's the, and, and, and there's so many other things that the Holy Spirit does in our lives, but I just want you to focus on those five. Right? I often tell people, one of the ways that I know the Holy Spirit is in my life and that, man, like God has radically changed me is to ask my wife. <laughs> it's really to ask my wife, right? Because I feel bad for her because we've been married for 12 years. And so the first probably couple years of our marriage, she probably went through a lot with me, right? Um, but I would like to think that over the years that she has seen a transformation in my life, a transformation that is not complete, because I still need work, right? But I would like to believe there's work that the Holy Spirit is doing in my life and he is continuing to do in my life. When I was growing up and I had a lot of anger issues, um, now people think I'm soft and I'm like, all right, cool. It's all right. I'm glad that you think I'm soft because I prayed for God to help me find empathy because I didn't have empathy for people I had a lot of coldness in my heart for people. There are times I literally asked God to pray. I prayed, man, God, help me, like, make me cry because I couldn't, like, I, had, I felt like I had no heart, right? Um, and now I find myself crying during worship. And then I find myself crying watching girly movies with my wife, you know? Um, but, you know, those are not, listen, those are not evidence of, like, okay, yes, like, if you cry with watching girly movies, you know, you have the Holy Spirit. But, but there are changes in your life that happens if people who know you best cannot see a transformation, a radical transformation in your life, then there's something wrong. If people who know you best can't see a difference from who you were past before Christ and who you are now, where's the transformation? Where's the radical newness? Where's the renewal of the mind? Where's the deep intimacy with God? Right? That is the role of the Holy Spirit. 
There has to be a transformation that is evident for people to see, a transformation that has occurred and is occurring in our lives. And so Paul asked the Galatians, did you experience the Holy Spirit? And if you did, why do you go back and trust in your flesh? And so what we're seeing is the Galatians have forgotten the Holy Spirit. Just like I think we live life forgetting that we have our helper. And many of us are not progressing in our faith because we have forgotten our helper. The Lord is not breaking sin and strongholds in our lives because we have forgotten our helper. We're not reconciling in relationships that are hard, whether it's with our spouse or whether it's with friends, people, our enemies, because we have forgotten our helper, because we think the solution is that we need to try more. But the solution is for us to rest more in the power of the Holy Spirit, our helper. And many of us are wrestling with different areas of our lives and we feel stuck and we feel discouraged. And what we do, we try to figure it out on our own. So if I read more books, Christian books, if I listen to more Christian podcasts, or maybe if I sit in front of a therapist, which is really good to do, some of us probably need that. But this is the way that I will have freedom from these struggles in my life. So if I do these things more, I will have victory. And Paul says, oh, foolish Galatians, that's dumb. Oh, foolish Galatians, who messed up your thinking? You have forgotten your helper. You're trying so much in the flesh and you're trusting so little in the spirit. Oh, foolish Galatians. I believe the reasons why, one of the reasons why, we operate so much in the flesh and not trust and trust so little in the spirit is because of our evangelical churches. Our evangelical churches today promote intellectualism, promote gifting, charisma, promote having sound theology and doctrine, which all those things are, are good, like people who can speak well and preach well. All those things are good but those things could really be done without power, without power. A church could be very sound and very charismatic with no power. A Christian could be very gifted and even sound in their theology, but not love their wives well. Still struggling in sin still having addiction, still prideful, still selfish, not walking in integrity, right? With no power. In the same way, even for our churches today, we can either be very intellectual or even be very charismatic, but the Holy Spirit is what gives power. If in a church... There's no faithful preaching of the gospel that gives power. 
If there's no production of new life where people are being radically changed, if there's no discipling of faithful believers who are actively fighting sin and fostering maturity and unity amongst the body, including in your marriages or restoring relationship, walking in unity with others who are different, welcoming diversity, or mobilizing mature believers to be on mission, then it shows an evidence of lack of power, right? And so we can do all those things and not have power. And you know what? The enemy wants us to believe those are the things that matter so that we can forget the Holy Spirit. And I think this is one of the reasons why prayer is not a priority in most of our lives. That we trust in ourselves, we trust in our gifts, we trust in our intellect, we trust in our experiences, but we don't get on our knees to trust in God. And so prayer becomes an afterthought and the enemy doesn't want us to see prayer as the way that we tap into God's power. And so we don't pray. We don't seek God's power. And so the enemy wants us to keep us there where we are powerless and complacent, which is a very dangerous place to be in. But he wants us to be powerless and complacent because he doesn't want us to be desperate and hungry for God, right? And so, man, the power of the Holy Spirit is so essential in our lives. And it's so sad how the way that we think about the Holy Spirit today is so different from the way that we've seen the Holy Spirit operate in the Bible. We've put him in a box. Or we don't trust him. We trust more in ourselves. And that is delusional. And so what Paul does in Galatians, and as we move on to verses 9, 7 through 9, he wants to move the Galatians back, back to the gospel. So he's telling the Galatians, listen, the fact that you're now trusting in your flesh, you are moving backwards. You are forgetting the gospel, and we are all prone to forget the gospel. And this is why we need to relearn the gospel every single day to remind ourselves of our need for God's power. Right? Because the gospel is not just this entry point to salvation, but man, the gospel is what we need every single day to continue to live this life. And so this is what he's saying. Yo, you're going backwards. If we're going backwards, all right, let's go back to the gospel. And so what he does, he takes them back to the gospel where the gospel was first preached in the Old Testament. You know the gospel was preached in the Old Testament? Right? And the same way people are saved today is the same way that people were saved back in the Old Testament. And I think this is what he's trying to get at. Because right now, these people are saying that you need to follow the law of Moses. But then he takes them back to Abraham. And he actually says in Galatians chapter 3 17, Do you realize this law that these Jewish people are telling you to follow actually came 400 years after? Abraham. So that's foolish. You see, they've distorted it over time. When the gospel was first preached to their forefather, Abraham, in which they now have this religion, it was 400 years later they received the law of Moses. 
And now they're trusting in the law of Moses and not the initial gospel that was preached. And he's like, let's go back to the word. And that's why even for us, it's very important whenever we're arguing with people, whether we're arguing or we're trying to make them see a point about, man, what's the meaning of marriage? How do we define sexuality? Our opinion does not matter. We take them back to the authority of God's word. The scripture alone is authoritative and it's infallible. We have God's word as the authority. And so when we are trying to help someone see the truth, your opinion does not matter. We take them back to God's word. And not just to also prove our point is right, but God's word is what reveals Jesus. God's word reveals Jesus. And when God's word reveals Jesus, God's word is life. And so we're not just arguing to be right, but we're arguing for life. God's word is true and it reveals Jesus. This is where we find Jesus. And this is where Paul is about to reveal Jesus in the Old Testament in Abraham's life. In verse seven through nine, Paul says, says, and I think in summary, and I, I want to make this as, as simplified as possible, and I want to encourage you to read some of the references on your own, but in 7 to 9, Paul wants us to know that Abraham believed the same gospel that we were preached now, and this new life, right, he's going to show us new life. New life does not happen. New life cannot be produced in our own strength but it's by God's grace. And we're gonna see this through Abraham's life. The same way that God operates back then, the same way God operates now, it's not through our efforts. So Galatians, or, or Genesis chapter 12, right? Genesis chapter 12, this is where we're first introduced to Abraham. And Abraham, believe it or not, was a Gentile, right? Abraham was a Gentile, not a Jew. And so I want you to see how foolish this is because Jewish people hate Gentiles, but their granddaddy was a Gentile. And that's foolish because the word Gentile literally means of all nation. And it wasn't until later we had Jews, right, through Jacob. And so Paul is saying, listen, at one point, God's goal was for all nation to receive the gospel the same way like Abraham, not through religion, not through tradition, but through what happened with Abraham, through a promise. And so again, we see how foolish this argument between Jews and Gentiles following rules and religion was because it was 400 years later and even this Gentile named Abraham was the father of all nation. And so Genesis chapter 12, verses two and three, the first thing that we see is God initiates a relationship with Abraham. God initiated this relationship with Abraham. Out of all the people in the world, God chose Abraham. God initiated a relationship with him. And even when we think about ourselves, out of all the people in the world, God initiated a relationship with you. That you have an opportunity to know the God who created you, who loves you, and who has a plan for you. 
He initiated a relationship with us. He chose Abraham among the nations, not based on things that Abraham has done, even prior to his history. Right? We don't hear anything about things that Abraham had done to deserve God choosing, but God chose Abraham solely based on his free choice, his sovereignty. He chose Abraham. And then we see that God showed grace to Abraham. The verse says, God says, I will make you a great nation. He calls Abraham. He chooses Abraham. He makes a promise to Abraham. He shows him grace. And then he says, I will. I want you to count how many times it says, I will. And how many times you see where it says, Abraham will. God says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. Right? I will bless you. Bless those who bless you. And I will curse those who cursed you with contempt. And all the people on earth will be blessed through you. Right? About six or seven times, God says, this is what I will do. And not once it said because of what Abraham did. And we see how God chooses based on his sovereignty, based on his grace to show mercy to this man who hasn't done anything to earn it. He chose to walk with him, to give him access to his blessing. God promised all these things before Abraham did anything to deserve it. And this is the way God always operate throughout history, through grace. This promise that God said he will do in Abraham's life was through grace. And this is how he's always operated. But today we think God operates differently, where instead of God initiating and saying, this is what I would do before you can do anything, we think it's the opposite, where God I need to do before you can do anything for me. God, I need to fix my life and then I can approach you. God, I need to get myself together and then I can approach you. God, I need to do more, 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 more and earn. And then once I build this reservoir of good things, then I can present it to you and then you can say, okay, yeah, that's enough. But here we're seeing the total opposite where God is saying, you are on empty, but then I'm willing to fill you with my blessing. So it's totally opposite from our thinking, but this is how God has always operated. God is the one who initiated this relationship with Abraham, and God wasn't impressed with Abraham. You understand that? God is not impressed by you. God is not impressed by us. That's why our good deeds doesn't oppress him, right? The only thing that impressed God is Jesus. And he says, I've credited that righteousness to you. And then we see this later on where he says that of Abraham. And then now if we continue in the story, we see how Abraham also couldn't have done anything to impress God. 
right? Because in Genesis chapter 15, God continues to unfold this promise to Abraham where he says to Abraham, I want you to look at the sky and count all the stars. If you are able to count them, then he said, your offspring will be that numerous. It's like, hey, Abraham, I want you to look at the sky and man, like this is how big your, your family line will be. And so in verse six, Abraham believed God and that declared Abraham righteous. It didn't say Abraham worked and that declared him righteous. Abraham was faithful and then that declared him righteous. Abraham was sinless and that declared him righteous. No, it says Abraham believed in God's promise and that declared him righteous. Now, the promise that God made to Abraham was a radical promise because what God promised to Abraham is that you will have a seed, an offspring, and this offspring would help you or the offspring would make you great, a great nation. The conflict to that, the problem with that was that Abraham and his wife were barren. They were barren. Abraham's wife couldn't have kids. And so Abraham believed, you know, my wife has been trying to have kids and she couldn't. And if you say we're going to have kids and through this offspring, I will be a great nation. I believe you. And so the problem we see here, Abraham had nothing but trust. He couldn't do anything. This blessing, this promise of what God is going to do, I hope you see where we're going, could not have been done through his natural flesh, could not have done through his natural powers, could not have done in his own effort because it was impossible. Sarah was barren. But then Abraham believed this, right? Abraham believed this. Sarah had tried for several years to have a child to produce new life, to produce new life from her flesh. And it was impossible. And she tried and she failed. She tried and she failed. And now God says, I will make you able to do that. But now at 76, Sarah is 76 and Abram is 86. They're starting to think, mm, it's a little too late, God. It's a little too late. I mean, the cards are really stacked against us. Not only am I barren, and it's been impossible for me to have kids, but now I'm old. I'm old. And now Sarah is feeling this sense of desperation. She hears this promise. Man, a great nation can come through our family line, and I can't have kids in my own flesh. How about I try in my own effort? And so what Sarah does is she has Abraham sleep with the maid to commit adultery. Since I can't do it myself, let me figure it out on my own. 
since God, you said it, and I believe it, but I can't understand how it will happen. I don't see it. And time right now is not on my side. Let me figure it out on my own. Have this young maid come, sleep with my husband, commit adultery, break God's law, have this baby. Now, God, here's your baby. Here's the promise. I fulfilled your word. And this is a picture of what we try to do. God, it's impossible for me to live the life that you're calling me to. How about I change your rules a little bit and compromise to make it easier? God, it's impossible for me, right, to please you. God, you know my flesh. You know my struggle. How about I cross the line and not go too far? But then, God, I know you would understand. Let me compromise. And this is what Sarah does. She compromised in a way to make things make sense. She compromised in a way that seemed easier for her. Right? And the problem is, no matter how well our intentions may be, God desires for perfection and things to operate the way that he wants. And so because Sarah couldn't produce life in her own flesh, she needed a supernatural intervention. She needed divine help not to try to figure things out on her own, right? She needed help. And so listen to this in Galatians chapter 18. Again, when Sarah heard that it was her, not the maid, but her who was supposed to have this child, she laughed at God. Like, God, you tripping. I don't know what you're talking about. I can't do it. Like, you set a standard. I, I can't do it. So how do you expect me to live by that standard? I'm just going to try my best and figure it out on my own. And I'm sure you will understand. I'll give you my broken obedience, but I'm sure you'll endorse it. And this is how we often try to live. Galatians 18, or Genesis 18, verse 10 to 14 it says, now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent behind uh, him, behind Abraham, and Abraham and Sarah were old and getting on in years, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Again, it's impossible. And so she laughed to herself, <laughs> right? She laughed to herself when she heard this conversation that was happening where God was saying to Abraham, I will bless you. You will have a child. She's like, Man. this is why I love the Bible. Listen to what it says. She laughed to herself, and then she says, after I am worn out, right, and my Lord is old, will I have delight? Essentially, she's like, one, I'm old, and two, he technically can't do anything. It's impossible for both of us to do it. But the Lord asked Abraham, says, hey, why did Sarah laugh? Saying that I, can I really have a baby when I'm old? All right? And I'm sure most of us will probably would be thinking the same way. And listen to the word of God. I love this. And God says, is anything impossible for the Lord? 
I want you to hear that for yourself. Is anything impossible for the Lord? Is anything impossible for the Lord? I want you to preach that to yourself. Is anything impossible for my God? Is anything impossible for the Lord? What is that thing that you're looking at and you're like, this is impossible for me to do? Preach to yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself. Is anything impossible to the Lord? Right? Because what we see after this, Sarah doesn't have a child right away. Right now she's 76, and then she finally has her child at 90, 14 years later. 14 years later. God promises, then 14 years later, we see the fulfillment of his promise. Right? What would you do in those 14-year period if you were Sarah? What would you believe in those 14 years? God, you've forgotten me? God, obviously you want me to do this on my own. Maybe I misheard you, God. Right? Or, God, man, I, I don't trust you. I don't believe you. Because it's 14 years. Year one went by, okay, I can, I can do it year one. Year two went by, okay. Year five, year 10, year 14, by then, like, I'm out, right? And so I think this is the reality of what sanctification looks like in our lives. The moment we get saved doesn't mean that God completely set us free. It takes process. It takes time. The process of becoming like Jesus is not something that happened instantaneously, the process to become like Jesus and to walk the life that God has called us to live, for some of us, it could take 14 years. For some of us, it could happen, praise God, immediately. For some of us, it's a lifetime. Sanctification, living according to the way that God has called us to live, to fulfill the promise that he has placed in us, to live like Jesus, to live holy lives. It can be a process. And this is what God is saying. In that moment, when you see, God, why am I still wrestling with this? God, why I keep failing at this? Like, is there something wrong with me? Do I not have the Holy Spirit? Like, I've tried, I've prayed. Like, do I just give up? God, is your promise true that have you really changed me? Like, I want to see change now but then we see sanctification is a process. It's a lifelong process. And what God wants to teach us, even through this, and he wants to say, listen, trust in my promise. You don't see it now. You don't see it now, but I'm working in you. Trust in my promise. You're not seeing the fruit of it now, but there's fruit that you don't see. Trust in my process. And those things that you think are impossible are possible through me, that doesn't mean now in 14 years you don't see me working, you say, well, I'm done. Let me go back to the flesh. No, trust in the helper. There's help for you. There's no bondage of sin that is too impossible for God to deliver us from. There's help for you. 
There's no stronghold of addiction, stronghold of anxiety, stronghold of depression and fear that is too impossible for God to give us victory. Trust in the helper. There's no brokenness in our past that God can't free us from and restore us. We trust in the helper. And listen, there's no heart and there's no mind that God can't restore and renew. We trust in the helper. I love Ezekiel chapter 36. And for your encouragement, I would try to remember it. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26 to 27. God says, again, listen to what God is going to do, not us. God says, I will give you a new heart. I will give you a new spirit. I will put within you. I will restore or remove the heart of stone that doesn't feel, that is cold, that doesn't have an affection for me. Like I will remove that heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart that feels a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statue and be careful to obey my rules. I will do it, not you. And that is so hard for us, especially people who like to see results. Like if I put in the work, I should see the result. It's so hard for us to just rest. Right? I have a problem with resting. I don't know how to do Sabbath. I know I'm supposed to do Sabbath, but I don't because the days that I'm off, I always find something to do because I just don't like to rest because I feel like I'm lazy or not productive if I just sit around and not do anything. And that is our nature. Like we always need to find a way to do. And resting takes faith to rest and believe and trust, right? And this is why it's so important for us to understand our efforts to live and progress in our walk with God will always fall short when we try ourselves, but resting in what God will do, him being our helper, is what we need, right? And then so finally, Paul says in verses 10 through 14, after he highlights this amazing story about Abraham and then showing us how we have attempted, just like Sarah and Abraham, to fulfill God's promise when it's impossible, we try to make ways to figure it out on our own in our own flesh when it's impossible. But man, when we wait and we trust in God's help, He does what's impossible through us. And he produces the life that we always want. He's trying to produce a supernatural life, give birth to a new life. And we're trying to do it on our own. And then we see when we rest, God produces the new life in us through faith. Right? And so we see here, Paul goes on. He talks about, he says, if we try to live our life on our own strength, we are only placing ourselves under a curse. And this is what he's going to get at. Because the law requires for you to live perfectly. 
If we're trying to do it by ourselves, you're only going to place yourself under a curse. He says, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from this curse, though. Christ redeemed us from this curse of the law by becoming a curse for us because it is written, curse is everyone who is hung on a tree. And the purpose was that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles by Christ Jesus so that we could receive the promised spirit through faith, right? And so through Jesus, now we are no longer under a curse because he became a curse for us. He fulfilled the law for us. And because he fulfilled the law for us, it is credited to us as righteousness. And he took the curse for us, breaking the law, so that when we break the law, we don't have to fear God because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because he took the consequence of us breaking the law and he became a curse for us so that we don't have to live perfectly, but we live by faith. And so it all begins with the cross. Christ accomplished the law perfectly for us. He became a curse for us. And we receive his blessing of having a relationship with God. And this relationship with God now motivates us to love. And now we start asking, okay, well, then what? So why the law? So if he took the curse and now we're blessed, do now I just live however I want? And this is where Paul starts honing down on the purpose of the law because he goes on and he talks about you are now redeemed. And the fact that you are redeemed, it should motivate you to something else. The fact that Jesus Christ redeemed us from the curse, he died on the cross for us. He is displaying his amazing love, right? John, 1 John 4, 19 says, we love now. We love now because God first loved us. Now we love. Why? Not because of fear, not because of judgment, not because of condemnation. We love. Why? Because God first loved us. So love sets a higher standard than obligation. So now, in fact, we are under a higher standard than the law. We are under the standard of love, a relationship. Our relationship now with God is not just about now keeping up with rules. It's about love. It's about love. Because of the spirit of God that is in us, he gives us this new heart now to love. And he gives us this new heart and this new mind now to have different desires. Where now it's not because I have to be faithful. Now I want to be faithful. Right? It's not because I have to be kind, but now I want to be kind. I have to forgive, but now I want to forgive. Like when I go to work, I go to work because of obligation. I have to pay my bills. I don't go to work saying, oh man, I love my boss. Yeah, you may love work, but you're not thinking. You're thinking about retiring. You're thinking about leaving work to go home. And then when you go home, you're not thinking, ah, oh, I have to go home. I hope you don't think that way. 
No, I'm not thinking about retiring from my wife and my kids. Well, I mean, go to college, yes, maybe. But I mean, the heart of it is that, man, I want to be home versus I have to go to work. There's a difference in relationship now versus obligation. Because of love, now I want to be faithful. I want to be kind. I want to show forgiveness. I want to love my enemies. And not because of obligation or duty, but because of the glory of God alone and not for myself. Not because I am doing it to receive something, but it's for the glory of God alone that I want to live. I want to live. I want to end with this. Um, when I was in high school, I had a crush. And I didn't tell my wife, and this is the first time she's probably hearing this. And so, so I had a crush. And uh, I wrote my crush a letter. I thought I had, I, I thought I had game back then. So I wrote my, my crush this letter. And in the letter, it said, I will cross the ocean for you. <laughs> I will go and bring you the moon. I will be your hero, your strength, anything you need. I will be the sun in your sky, and I will light your way for all time. I promise you, for you I will. I will shield you from the rain, and I will let no harm come your way. And listen, know these arms will be your shelter, and know these arms will, won't let you down. I mean, you guys are laughing like you know this letter, like, and probably. I wrote this, I will move the mountain for you, I'm here for you forever. I'll be your fortress, tall and strong. I'll keep you safe from all harm. For you, I will. And so I wrote this, and I gave it to her. And she read it. She's like, Carly, did you write this? And then I said, well, that's a very nuanced question, you know? Um, did I write it, or was I inspired by it? And so, I mean, for those who know, this is a song by Monica. And so this was also her favorite song, and so she is like, no, forget it. Don't talk to me anymore, right? But that's not the point, right? The point, when you hear songs like that, or you hear declaration of love like that, it's because it's motivated by love. It's motivated by relationship. It's inspired not by duty or obligation, even if it sounds radical, I will move the mountain for you. For you, I will, right? We see how radical love influences radical obedience. Radical love influences radical gratitude and obedience. We want to do, not because we have to do, right? And so this is what Paul is trying to get at. Now that you are under a new law, and this law is not a law of Moses and religion and rules and obligation, but this is a law of love that Christ died. He loved first, 
it should motivate us to radical obedience, right? Knowing that we are radically loved by God will inspire us to live in radical obedience, where we look forward to doing. I look forward to doing for my love. I don't look at it as an obligation. We find joy in doing. We find joy in obedience. We look forward to doing, but then here's the thing. We also find joy in just being. Yes, we find joy in doing, but we also find joy in just being and resting. There's joy and freedom in just resting and knowing that we are loved and we don't have to do all these things, the law, to be right with God. We get to do it and we want to do it, but then we also rest and knowing that he loves us and there's nothing more that we can do and there's nothing less that we can do for him to take that love away. And so God loves us and that love motivates us to live for his glory and his glory alone and the Holy Spirit is our helper to empower us to live that type of life. This is the type of life that you want. A life that is empowered by the Holy Spirit to motivate you, not a life that is under the curse that you're afraid of making mistake and getting things wrong. We rest in his promise that he is with us, he will be with us, and he is always with us. And he wants to empower us. So don't be foolish to try to think that you can do it on your own. Father, we thank you so much. Um, God, I just really pray that this word will have a revival in our hearts to help us to see that in light of God's grace, there is a new shifting of law that takes place in our hearts. Lord, I pray that we would see that the shifting is now motivated by love and not rules. And so now that we have your love and we didn't work to earn it, but you freely gave your love. And out of that, we live. And out of that, we are grateful. Out of that, we respond with radical, respond with radical obedience and say, Jesus, I get to live for you. I get to walk in obedience for you. I get to be faithful to you. You called me to this amazing life. Thank you. But then we also cry, but I can't do it. I can't do it on my own. Holy Spirit, help me. And so Lord, help us to remember that we have a helper, that when we are fighting, we don't need to fight alone. Help us to remember that we have a helper, that when we are struggling, we don't need to struggle alone. Help us not to think about the power and the strength that we have in our own flesh remind us, remind us how frail that is. Oh, remind us of how powerful your divine help is, that we don't trust in ourselves, but we trust in you. And when we do fail, which we will, oh God, help us to remember 
that there's no condemnation. We are no longer a law under the law and we are no longer living under the curse of the law, but we have been redeemed by Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Help us to remember that. We pray in your name. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information about Blueprint Church, visit us online at blueprintchurch.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Blueprint Church. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Sunday.